Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, a podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, which I speak to some of our best-loved chefs about their culinary odysseys. We'll find out when they developed their passion for food and how they took it to the next level, with a few handy tips thrown in for good measure along the way. We'll also be talking about outdoor cooking and how to get the best out of your barbecue. Then, of course, there's our recipe challenge. Amongst those who've already spoken to is Angela Hartler, Rick Stein and Gok Wan, who has nothing but kind and complimentary words for our latest guest, as in fact does the entire planet, the proper legend that is Ken Hom. Born in Arizona to Chinese parents, Ken grew up in Chicago, learning how to cook by working in his uncle's restaurant from the age of 11. A self-confessed hippie back in the day, his massive break came in 1982, when the BBC asked him to present Ken Hom's Chinese cookery, He's since presented numerous TV shows, written over 20 books, and won loads of awards. Ken, how lovely to hear your voice. How lovely to see your face. So you're, you're in Bangkok. I'm, and- in, I'm going to have to pay you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know, every time I see you, there, there, there's something about you, Ken, that whenever people walk into room in your presence, there's something beautifully calming about you. I don't know whether you're aware that that's the effect you have on people. No, I think it's age. I think it's age more than anything. <laughs> when when you've been around as long as I have, I mean, I've been cooking for over 60 uh, years, which is scary. <laughs> and uh, I, as you know, Simon, you're in, uh, you're one of the greats. Uh, food is something that we learn every single day and it changes. It's fantastic. Uh, you never stop learning and you never stop uh, feeling the energy and discovering things i love it and you just have that joy of it you know like you said you've been cooking for over 60 years and still whenever i talk to you about food or i see you talking about food that sparkle in the eye that kind of almost searching for that excitement is is there all the time and and it never ever leaves you and it's that thing about never wanting to stand still which i think is something that, that you're always known for well you know i say food is bts you know what that means right better mm-hmm. than sex and uh, because <laughs> I think, Ken, I, Ken, I think particularly as you get older. <laughs> you miss your calling, Simon. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, one of the things that, I, that I'm really intrigued by and want to do, when, when we were doing our research into you, and, you know, you and I have known each other for a very long time, there's so little about your early life that, I'd love to kind of go back and just kind of go over that whole thing. You know, we sort of said this, you know, your, your, your whole history. I mean, wh- where do we start? Do we start at, at the very beginning? What, what's your earliest memory of growing up? My father died when I was very young and my mother, uh, we were very poor. And the good thing about that was I was always hungry. And um, uh, my earliest memories of, of good food, especially was being invited out to banquets because that was great because there was always too much food being served and we got to take the leftovers home and that was fantastic and I remember um, when I first learned English at age six uh, the school had to test me because they thought I had a tapeworm because I was so thin and small Uh (laughs) because I was hungry I was hungry (laughs) Uh, so food has always been something that was uh, sort of special uh, to me. You, you know, it's funny because people ask me, do you have breakfast, Ken? I said, no. You know why? Because when I wake up, I'm so full because uh, I'm the only person I know that 
dreams about food. Other people dream about <laughs> sex, about making money, about that. I dream about food. I dream about cooking. And then when I wake up, I feel so full. I mean, I can't face food until lunch. Then I'm famished. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that that sort of very early memories of being about six. Now, we, we sort of said in the intro that your earliest memories of of working with food was working in your uncle's restaurant. So, I mean, obviously, the whole kind of family business thing when we worked from early age. Were you straight away into a kitchen? Well, the thing is, um, I started out doing a lot of prep between washing dishes during um, uh, the busy hours. I had to do wash the dishes, do the prep. And then finally, after a year, they would allow me to do a, a few things in the walk, especially when the chefs took off in the afternoon. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you learn at such a young age, Simon, you really sort of get the essentials about how to do it right. I just never dreamt, I said, working in a restaurant, I wouldn't want to wish that I'm my worst enemy. <laughs> it is, it's not glamorous. That is a crock that is so wonderful and everything. Being a chef is highly overrated. And um, after working in my uncle's restaurant, after about five years, I thought, I'd rather get into a gang or do something. <laughs> Work in a restaurant. Ken, when you, when you said that, I could actually hear all our listeners go, <gasps> <laughs> but, but the thing is, but you, also when you're that age, so were you having to balance school and working? Yeah, it was a pain because um, uh, people, they have weekends off, which I didn't. During summer holidays, working my, uh, you know, like crazy, uh, 12 hour days. But I learned it's nice to make a little bit of your own money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at that point, I was actually almost making as much as my mom, who was working full time. And that, that's a little bit empowering as well. And, and so later I went to, I thought, I'm, I told my uncle, I said, this is great, but uh, I can't do this anymore. He, became sort of like my surrogate father. And he was a good businessman. He taught me a lot about how to manage my affairs. And he, he didn't have any children. So I was, became his sort of like surrogate son. And then from there, he, he was really into food. He knew about food. We're talking about the you know, early 60s, right? You weren't even born. Um, oh, you're and, too kind. And you know, it's, it, my uncle used to travel to uh, Taiwan at that time, China was closed, and to Hong Kong, he would recruit all these chefs and bring them back to Chicago. We had the best Chinese restaurant in Chicago, and it was just packed not only with tourists but with Chinese as well. And he was right in the center, and he just made whew, lots, of loads and loads of money. <laughs> but he was really into good food, and he worked hard. He really worked hard. I want. I want to sort. Of- Backtrack a bit before we leap too far, because the, the whole thing, you know, the start of this was sort of like, you know, because your dad died at an early age and there was your mum and you remember having a poor upbringing. And you just said then that, you know, when you were working, you were then almost earning as much as your mum. So I guess that's a big change. That family dynamic then is a change. And, and whilst you liked food, it also became and empowering and equally something that was a way of kind of moving out of, if you like, a, a difficult situation. Well, you know what was nice that, I mean, I gave the money to my mom and uh, we could eat more meat <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> yeah. And, and she liked that. She wouldn't 
buy the cheapest thing. It's funny because when I was growing up, actually some of the best things were the cheapest. Uh, things like cod, for instance. Now cod costs more than meat. Yeah. Um, but when I was young growing up, people didn't eat sort of seafood. And that was sort of things they, uh, it was excess they threw away or people were not really into fish. And my mom was. So I had a lifetime loving of uh, great fish but she was able to buy more things, which is great. And, you know, my mom's one of these people. The more money I gave her, the more she was giving things away. She would buy things for people and give it. I said, wait a minute, that's my money. <laughs> but that's why she's a great person. She, my mom was so great. She was so generous. You all know has been a very generous human being. So do you think that that seeing what your mum did said, okay, look, you know, okay, we're, we're okay, but we don't have a lot. To see your mum being a generous human being, that's clearly shaped your life. Absolutely. Uh, her values, what she taught me, uh, even though she lost her husband at a very early age, she was young. And when I went to China to film with Ching, I found out how much my mom loved my dad and that kind of thing. Uh, yet she was, uh, because she didn't speak English. Can you imagine living in the States and not speaking English? She was in Chinatown, but was she's surrounded by people. And it was like our own little village. And it's funny because when you grow up in Chinatown, you think everybody speaks Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's a shocker when you go out and say, wow, what are they speaking? English. <laughs> but when you're young, when you're young, you learn fast, I could tell you. <laughs> you <English is. laughs> Did you ever go back to Chicago? Um, not anymore. Not since my mom passed away. Because I, I live in France and I, I come to the UK all the time. And I live here in Thailand. So... I haven't gone back since uh, almost 10 years now. Yeah. All right. So, so so we've got up to the age of about 16. So you're working away and you're you're learning to be a chef. You decide you don't want to work in a restaurant because it's a nightmare of a job. I've been trying to stop doing that for 32 years now, Ken. It's still not managed. I've still not managed to do it. So so what happens next? Then? I'm just going to pay my pension. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens next? So you're 16. So how, how do you well, how do you escape the world of restaurants? I, I tried to, I got a job in a supermarket, sort of working on the butchery side. And I thought, hmm, this is, a, a, I've never seen so much meat in my life. And I said, mm, this is not my thing. And then finally, I found an office job, which I loved because I didn't have to work weekends. I could go clubbing with my friends. I remember going to this place called the Cheetah, seeing people like, Tina Turner. I remember I, I went with all my buddies to see James Brown in this very black neighborhood where people said, you're not going to come back alive. And to the contrary, when we got there, all these black people said, hey, you're so cool, man. You, know, you, you ain't black, but you, I, you like James Brown. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I want to see pictures of you in this era. You know, because obviously we all see you because you never age. You know, you look exactly the same as you did when we all became aware of you in 1882. I'm your granddad. <laughs> but I, I want to I see pictures of that age. Next time you and I meet up, Ken Hom, I am expecting <laughs> pictures of you on the way to your you James Brown gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you're in your office job and you're, and you're kind of, and you're partying like a crazy man. The weekends. Yeah. So what happens and next then? So, you, so you're still in Chicago oh. at this point. Right. And then I decided to, you know, at that time, um, California was beckoning. Where are we? What year are we in, Ken? Yeah, we're in sort of the late 60s, uh, about wow. 68, 69. And then 
I decided to well, go out and see what California was about. So I was able to get a summer job. So I thought, that's cool. I can support myself while I'm out there. And I thought, wow, this is great. You know, drugs and rock and roll. And, and I mean, how fantastic. <laughs> and so did you just go? Did you go, did you go originally to sort of go and have a summer job? Or did you say, right, you know what, California, California is where I want to be? No, I just went just to see it, got a summer job. And, and through uh, a mutual friend in Chinatown in Chicago, um, he had some friends in San Francisco. So I was able to sort of settle down. And then I thought, wow, how cool California is. Because number one, it's not like Chicago with the, the most horrible weather in the world. <laughs> I mean, 20 below zero, I used to go to school. And Icicles used to form in the bottom of my nostril because it was so bloody cold. <laughs> and, uh, and snow, I mean, it was a nightmare. I hate cold. And, and California was beautiful. Everybody was cool. They were tan. They had long hair. They were hip. I mean, this was the time of all this wonderful music coming from the UK, England. Rolling Stones, Beatles. Yes, bring it on. You know, <laughs> And it was so cool. You know, everybody was cool. And what was really interesting, the food in California. Uh, there was a big Chinatown. The, supermark- uh, the supermarkets and the green grocers were, had fantastic things that I never saw in Chicago. Uh, fresh herbs, fresh, I mean, everything. And for the first time, I saw organic food. I said, what is this? Also, I realized that Everybody in California was anti-establishment. What I yeah. meant by that, we were anti-war, which I was, was cool with. Uh, the Vietnam War, we were saying. And we're anti-commercial uh, uh, food that we thought was poisoning everyone, which is not wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all this commercialization of food. And it's funny, uh, I said, I got to move here. So I went back home, I packed up, I told my mom, I said, I'm going west. <laughs> I'm going to go to the university there. You know, my mom was surrounded by the Chinese community. So, you know, she said, just do what you got to do and, and, and do it. She said, don't forget me. Don't worry. When I make money, I'll make sure. <laughs> Which I never uh, forgot. Uh, I mean, and in California, I started teaching about cookery. And, so what um, did you study I, there, Ken? You went to university there but to study what? I studied history of art. Okay. Believe it or not, yeah. it's so different from what I knew. And uh, I love, I, I lived in Berkeley, which is outside of San Francisco. And it was just so cool and wonderful. And um, I decided in uh, 1971, I saved up a grand total of $300. I was able to get a, a round trip to Europe. So I thought, this is cool. I've never been to Europe. So I landed in London and I had some friends in London. And um, uh, it's, it's so funny. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to cook for them. So I went to Chinatown and, and, and bought some things and cooked for them. But I thought the Chinese were restaurants are so 
strange in in the UK. Um, how come they have fish and chips? Where's that coming from? Or, or, oh, Ken, or it's, so, it's so depressing. <laughs> it's so depressing. Up to this point, we've had lovely tales of kind of like Chinatown and your uncle going and discovering things in Taiwan. Then you go to San Francisco and there's fresh herbs and organic and anti-kind of establishment food. And you come to the UK and we have fish and chips in our Chinese restaurants. Oh, guess what? Oh, I, we'll, we'll edit I, this bit out. <laughs> I, I, I had a life... I had a life long addiction to fish and chips because yeah. of that <laughs> and even here in bangkok i go and have fish and chips at this place because it's so good <laughs> and then i went to france and italy and i thought wow it opened a whole new world to me and so later i came to you know one year i lived in france studying at the university and then i came back uh, to berkeley in 74 and um I was desperately poor at that time. So uh, I was asked by this sort of wife of an MP, like member of Congress, if I would do a cookery class wow. in Italian cooking. What? <laughs> and, and, and it was for a grand sum of $300 for a whole weekend. That's and quite I a lot though back then. No kidding. I yeah. thought this will pay my rent for one and a half months. Yeah. And I said, I said, yes, I could do it. And I taught this weekend on it, how to make pasta. We're talking about 1974, 1974. People couldn't believe it, making pasta and, and these dishes I had learned in Italy. And then I did another class. It was so successful. And then the lady asked me, do you know anything about Chinese cooking? I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I could do that with a, you know, put a bandana over my eyes and I could do it blindfolded. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, you know, uh, I also discovered that more than anything, I love being a teacher. Uh -huh. And one thing led to another. I started uh, teaching. I, I did a cookery school in my home at first. And then I was asked to do a lot of public demonstration. Finally, I was uh, given a commission to do a book from one of the largest New York publisher. That book led to two full pages in the New York Times, wow. which at that time was huge. I mean, we're talking about 1981. And my publishers went berserk. The initial printing was 2,000 copies. They decided to do 28,000 wow. copies instead. That period though in, in your years when you work working in restaurants and you you know you went and got an office job you went to california that love of food was clearly always there because and obviously oh, you know yes, this is a, absolutely yeah that you you never lose that kind of love and desire simon i was always cooking i cooked french food i would look at julia child I, I mean you know we're talking about you know the late 60s early 70s um, I share this fight with this uh, uh, this chap because um, because you have to share you, you can't afford it by yourself and he invited his friends over and they all get stoned and I would wind up cooking and they would go wow <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I what happened was I wound up cooking all the time it was sort of my thing you know Ken cooks mm. it could be French or whatever I am cooking so I experimented I mean we're talking about now that before I went to Europe. And so I was always sort of the designated cook. <laughs> so when you when you got the book deal, were you cooking 
traditional Chinese food, or had you already begun to develop what was your style? No, it was traditional Chinese food. Uh, things that, especially that I learned from my uncle and the chefs at my uncle's restaurant, all the classic dishes. Uh, the book was called Chinese Technique, and it was modeled after another French chef called La Technique. And it was really good because she showed step-by-step step how to make something. And we test the recipes. And by this time, before the book came out, I was already not only teaching at my own home, but I was teaching at the California Culinary Academy, Wow! which was a school for professional chefs. It's amazing because I had people like Charlie Trotter come out of my classes. Really? I mean, he is, alongside you, Charlie, unfortunately, now passed, but, you know, was, was, was a proper hero of mine, a big influence on my career. Uh, a sweet guy. I mean, every time I used to go to his restaurant, when I went to visit my mom in Chicago, you go into the bar area and he would have all my books on display. I said, <laughs> this is embarrassing, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> he was so sweet. Um, he said he was riveted by my classes because I, I not only taught about uh, cooking itself, the, the technique, but also about culture and history, how it's all connected because it's not something that landed from Mars. Food is tied with history and a way of living. And why do we use the walk? I want people to understand that, how the techniques have evolved over the years. All right, well, I want to talk about walks and I want to talk about that big break in 1982, but I'm going to pause this bit so we go on to our barbecue section so what what we're going to do uh we're going to do um our barbecue and a see what we've done there clever clever thank you ben our producer uh in which i ask all of our chefs we ask the same five questions about outdoor cooking before we go on to the recipe challenge which again is a, is a tricky one uh, in the last series of grilling andy oliver told us the origins of barbecuing or so she said and she said it's caribbean but you beg to differ well I think barbecue is probably one of the most universal type of cooking in the world. Because what are you going to do when you live in a cave? (laughs) You have a fire. You have a fire. Yeah. And you don't have a wok. You don't have a hob or anything like that. You cook over the fire, which is barbecuing. It didn't originate anywhere. It just originated everywhere where Homo sapiens got their act together. Oh, I thought this was going to be far more argumentative, Ken. I thought you, I thought you were going to say, Andy's wrong, it's Chinese. It's 100% Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, 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 let's go for this. So these are the same, same five questions for everybody. So do you have a favourite memory of, of barbecuing or, or open flame cooking, whether it be you know something you've done or an experience that you had as a child or even as an adult? Well, you know, it's interesting. I learned a lot about barbecuing when I went to live in California. Why? Because the weather is nice and um, people were doing it as a healthy, easy way to cook something. And um, I really discovered, uh, uh, for instance, using mesquite charcoal Mm, and things like that and how it flavor food. I I love it because it's not something I sort of grew up with because we're poor and living in Chinatown. We didn't have a backyard. We didn't do barbecues and things like that. Of course, Chinese have barbecue. I had an uncle, another uncle that was famous around Chinatown for barbecuing. He would barbecue whole pigs, um, chicken, uh, 
turkeys. Boy, nobody does turkey like the Chinese because it's never dry. And the, the Chinese way of hanging something while they're barbecuing it is fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I love that technique. So you're almost sort of hanging it over the flame vertically rather than laying it right. onto the flames. Yeah, exactly. So all the fat drips down and it cooks really slowly. And, and because of the, the fat going on the fire, yeah. it gives that extra a smoky flavor. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's beautiful. And, and, and it's funny, isn't it? That, that flame feeling, that smokiness you you salivate it's almost like you cannot stop yeah. yourself because you know what that smell is and you know what that sound is that crackle as, as the fat it's the flames it's beautiful they're beautiful well, you know, simon it's it's a flavor from nature yeah rather than us seasoning it and things like that that's a, that's a really nice line i like that I, I like that a lot do you have a favorite time of year to barbecue well when it's nice uh, i don't do it here in in Bangkok, number one, it's too hot. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when I'm in uh, when I'm in France uh, over the summer, I think uh, in Europe, from June say to late September is a great time to barbecue. And when I'm in my house in Southwest France, I do a lot of barbecuing simply because it's a great way to have a dinner party. Why? Because everybody can be outside having drinks and you're sort of with them while you're cooking and they can smell it yeah because of the barbecue it's right there so they're they're salivating <laughs> while they're drinking their cocktails or champagne or whatever I always, and I, I always think the joy of a barbecue is the fact that it becomes an additional dinner guest you know that that when so, when you're cooking in your kitchen then it feels sort of separate but because you're all outside and you're actively doing it then you're as interested if you stand by the barbecue, as what's happening on there. So it's almost like the most interesting guests at the barbecue. It's this conviviality that, that comes out when you, you smell the food cooking. And, and especially when what I love about doing barbecues is uh, I always love the challenge of marinating something. Yeah. To give it, infuse it with flavors for a couple of days and, and then putting it on the barbecue. And I'd love to experiment with things like that. Uh, well, that, well, that leads on very nicely to the, to the third question, obviously because you're Ken Holm and because you're, uh, you're a very entertaining kind of uh, human being and you like to have people around and you have a big social life. So what's the most ambitious thing you've ever prepared on a barbecue? It's duck. And I tell you why, because you have to be really am ambitious to do a whole duck because a whole duck has so much fat. Yeah. And what you want to be careful of, is the whole thing doesn't go up in a flame, <laughs> and, 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 you, and your uh, your pork duck comes out as a charcoal mess. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so what's the secret so then? The secret is um, um, I use a Chinese method: is drying out the duck for several hours. I pour hot water on it. I dry it in front of a fan, and then I put. Uh, I do a mixture of hot uh, water with soy sauce, a little bit of honey. I put it over the duck, almost like picking duck. Uh -huh. And then I, I let it dry out as much as possible so that the skin feels like parchment. And I found that barbecuing the duck that way prevents it from charring. And then you've got to be careful about the heat. See, the heat is really important. I think most of the time people who barbecue, they tend to rush things. Don't rush things. Just stay calm. 
Don't drink too much before you finish the food. <laughs> oh, pot That's kettle black. Pot kettle black. The thing that nobody knows about you, Ken Holm, is you like a nice glass of wine. I, 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 I recall one very famous night of you and I at Northcote Manor, Nigel Howell's place, when you were doing Obsession and I was doing yeah. Obsession, and you and I stayed up long and late into the night. And the next day, I was rough as anything. And you, being Ken Holm, were ethereal and bright and breezy. I've never forgiven you for that night, Ken Holm. Okay, so go on. So don't drink too much, unless you're Ken Holm. <laughs> uh, I have experience. <laughs> also, too, you know what I always tell people? Don't experiment on your guests. In other words, if you've never done it before, yeah. wait till you perfect it before... You do it on the barbecue. I mean, in other words, you know, use your uh, family, you know, as a guinea pig, but don't do it on uh, friends until well, you master it. Well, again, that leads on to the question four is, have you had any disasters? Is The biggest disaster, maybe that you've had or equally, have you been to a barbecue where someone has absolutely messed it up quite royally? Well, I've seen other people when they put too many things on the barbecue and I've had to come and rescue it because the whole thing was going up in flames. And, you know, the, you could see them almost sobbing because it's all my dinners were. I said, calm down. That's cool. Don't worry. Just take it all off. Let the fire get down. <laughs> Turn it down. Take a deep breath. Take another <laughs> glass of wine. Oh, yes, oh, cool. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then, and then finally, do you have a top barbecuing tip that maybe people don't know? When we had Adam Richman on the show, his top tip was if you use the back of a spoon, put a little dimple in your burgers, then it will stop them ballooning when you cook them, which I really like as a tip. Yes, I think my biggest tip is don't rush it. What I do is I get it really hot to sear it a little bit, and then I turn the fire down very low. Why? Because I, I put it to the side so that it's not in the center fire, so that sort of the uh, surrounding heat. Yeah. So it's indirect cooking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to me, that's one of the biggest secrets of barbecue. It's indirect cooking. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, it's one of the big things that, that at Weber that we always kind of preach to people is that, that di- when you get to understand the direct and indirect yeah. cooking process, your barbecuing immediately goes to another level Uh, yes absolutely and also experimental see what happens when a disaster happens don't cry just say what lessons can i learn from it you know i've learned to was not my it's not something i grew up with but it's something i've learned to barbecue and i'm pretty good at it now (laughs) i bet i I, I bet i'm sort of thinking again it's just because of the respect that you have worldwide I would imagine anybody who decides to invite you around for a barbecue is either very confident, <laughs> stroke overconfident, or knows you incredibly well, or is a really good cook. Well, you know, most people are better than they think they are. Yeah. As long as they, you know, they stick to what they know. Don't experiment on guests. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <amazing>. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we're going to put we're going to put your barbecuing skills to the test then, because let's do let's do our challenge. Um, so, a reminder of the rules: we're giving all of our chefs forty five seconds to sell me a simple dish they'd make while entertaining this summer, uh, but they've got to be cooking on our barbecue. So, Ken, you have any cut of meat, fish, or vegetables? Um, you also have to prepare a marinade or a rub to go with it, and a cold side dish. Uh, and you have hold on, just let me get my little stopwatch on the go. You have, mm-hmm, come on, phone, and you have 45 seconds. So are you ready, Ken Hom? I'm ready. Okay, <laughs> three, two, one, go. You know what I would do is just take lovely chicken breast off the bone. I would just marinate it in some fresh thyme, which I love because it's from the garden, a hoisin sauce which is fantastic for barbecuing. A little bit of either Shaoxing rice wine or... or 20 seconds gone. You've got 25 seconds to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and some virgin olive oil, salt and pepper. And that's it. Put that marinade together, slap it on the barbecue, and you have perfect chicken. And are we having Ice a side with it, Can? Yes. You know what I... What I love with barbecues like that is a great salad. I'll let you have that because you're Ken Hom. That was that was 43 seconds, <laughs> and I, I, I'm never going to dispute anything you say. That's uh, that, that, <laughs> that, that's heavenly. So do people? So, so 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 do people barbecue for you? I mean, you know, I, I think that whole thing. Yeah, whether it be barbecue or invited round for dinner. I mean, I know even at, at my level of kind of you know of yeah. expertise, people get a little bit twitchy about inviting me round for dinner. You must have that a hundredfold. But you know what? I found that especially um, uh, people who are confident. I have a friend here named in Bangkok. Uh, she invites me to her house, uh, Lily, and she's a very confident cook mm. because she knows what she's doing and things like that. And in Southwest France, people invite me for uh, mussels and, and and chips. Oh, wonderful! Uh, you know things like that. They've done it before. They're perfect at it. Or some people come invite me to a barbecue because what they make is great. Yeah, but it is, I think, because I, 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 you've said almost Simple. the same thing that I have, is the fact that somebody else cooking for me, I adore. And I don't really oh, mind what I it is. It. Yeah, if somebody invites me around to their house and they give me beans on toast, a glass of wine and some <laughs> garlic bread, you know what? I'm happy because I'm sitting there and it's, it's almost like that social occasion is food yes. is part of the whole thing. And of course you want magnificent food. But that social yes. thing, which is what barbecues are all about as well, is such a exactly. nice thing to experience. You're absolutely right, Simon. What I love about barbecue is the simplicity of it. And you know, the simplicity is the most important thing to me. As you know, as you get older, you know, all these Michelin star restaurants and stuff like that. Oh, I can't be bothered. Because what I want to eat is just good, simple food. Yeah. Food that's well cooked. That's what I want. Yeah, I mean, uh, and good company. Exactly. And, of course, enough alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> See, people have learned so much about you today, things that I've known for many years, Ken, and you're kind of you're revealing your true self in this. It's because of you, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> So let's 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 go to that big turning point. Always what I love to do in grilling is that we find that pivotal moment in people's lives that sort of took them from being yes. very excited about food, loving food, to saying, right, here is that change. So 1982 is when the BBC got hold of you. 
that must have been right. that 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 life defining moment for you. Well, the thing is, I thought, you know, I my career was really just starting to take off in America. You know, you you won't believe it. Uh, in 1981, I was interviewed by this uh, young black woman in Baltimore. Um, she was just starting out. Her name was Oprah Winfrey. Wow! Wow! <laughs> wow! I mean, you know, whatever people, happened to her? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's major <laughs> but you know it's interesting and um so when the bbc came to calling i thought mm, you know as you know it's not a lot of money <laughs> yeah and um it's going to be a lot of work and i've never done television so i thought oh my god this is uh did the, did the approach is, come did the approach come on the back of the book the success of the book no it, the approach came from a, a recommendation from Madhur Jaffrey, who had just done an Indian cookery series right. that was incredibly successful. And they said, we've been looking for a Chinese cookery presenter. By the way, my audition tape is now on Facebook. It's, I don't know who put it on, but- Oh, really? God, I, was oh, so, I am I, I was watching so that awkward. after. <laughs> it's so awkward. I'll send you the link. It's so awkward. Dude, I, had, yeah. I had big hair. I had big hair. I had big hair. And we'll also put uh, that link up on there uh, on Grilling so everybody can share <laughs> that fantastic experience. <laughs> and it's it's funny what someone said. I was not at ease in front of the camera, but they said as soon as you started cooking, yeah. you were really in your element. And I think that came from me being a teacher. That's what they wanted on BBC. They want someone to teach. Yeah. They don't want a great chef. They want somebody who teach somebody so that they can make the same thing in their home and you've achieved something. Yeah. So um, I, I had a cookery school in Hong Kong at that time, which BBC said, we can come and film uh, after you finish your cookery classes in October of 83. And then we will insert that into the program. And it was an eight-part series. And I thought when I did it, this is never going to work. <laughs> but I thought, it's fun. I got to live in London for two months. I thought it was a fantastic experience. And the, the response to it was overwhelming. Oh, my, it's just, uh, what we used to say in those days, it, it blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> But it also changed the whole landscape of British kitchens. You know, nobody had a wok in 1982, Ken. Oh, they didn't. I remember Terence Conran said, I used to have these woks and nobody knew what to do with it. And then you came along and then we couldn't keep it in stock. (laughs) Yeah, it's just quite quite incredible. And it's funny because now, all these years later, that whole premise of what cooking, uh, but even just simple things like stir fry, it never even entered the British psyche around then. Even though right. we had a big Chinese community, somehow it, it, it stayed within the Chinese community. What what was it? It, it, it? I mean, it's you that has actually made it happen. No, not, not only that, but you know, Simon, it's really interesting about television. What I didn't realize that when you are on television, you are coming into people's homes and you become a member, especially when they like you, you become a member of the family, yeah. sort of. And I didn't know, maybe because I was a little bit awkward and 
you know, I wasn't a television personality. I think uh, I, I think the word I'd use, Ken, me. is 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 <laughs> honest, and I think that that's what people love. You know, I think that when you, you know, and you are you're a very honest human being anyway. But I think when people saw you in those first series, then you're right. There, there, there wasn't a polish about it, which was lovely, but there was a sincerity and an honesty about what you did. And you clearly 100% believed in what you were saying. So it didn't feel as if, oh, he's just saying this for the camera. It's like, this is him. This is, you know, this is what he does. You know, what I want to convey was my passion so that they would get it. And of course, I always tested my recipes many times to make sure it, it works completely well and if they can achieve just one dish that blows everybody away then i would have accomplished my mission yeah um and you know simon what i really love is uh, sometimes when i make a public appearance in the uk how people come up with that book that was published in 1984 all splatter with sauces yeah. and grease stains and said so i've cooked everything from this book <laughs> i mean it's sweet you know sometimes i always feel like crying <laughs> but, I, but i love that it, it's brilliant and it, and the thing is that book is timeless it's it, it feels yeah. it feels it yeah it feels up there with you know, all of you kind of class, like, you know, the original Leith book, some of Gary Rhodes' early books, books where you kind of go, this is different. You know, this is actually changing my my cooking repertoire. You know, as a home cook, this is changing what I do. And I think that that's really important. I, I wonder as well, because nobody was buying woks then, that one of the other joys about it, of course, is that woks are cheap. You know, you, you were yes. you were doing something. Here's a piece of kit that you can go out and buy for a few pounds. We're not saying right, go and spend a thousand pounds on a thermomix. It was a cheap thing that and you Simon, could buy anyway. I mean, the great thing, the great thing was that me, somebody going off to university, they don't have a lot of money. They're a student. They can just have one sort of kit, yeah, and they can make everything in it. And people were astonished. They said, "Wow." What is going on? <laughs> it's not a gimmick. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and that's the thing. And I think once we, you know, we, we obviously we talk about barbecue on this podcast about mastering barbecue. And if you were going to give somebody the the tip for if you're going to cook with a wok for the first time, and I mean, there must be a couple of people who've lived in a cave for the last like since 1982 who've never cooked with a wok. What are your tips then to making sure that you get the most out of it? But you know what, uh, Simon, what I do uh, sometimes I cook with my wok. On the barbecue, you know what I do? I remove the grill and I put the wok directly on the fire. Yeah. And wow, it's actually uh, like a Chinese restaurant wok. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're sitting right <laughs> in the flame, so there's no protection, so that so the metal is directly it's, it's, heated. But what what is nice is in the barbecue because it's big. Yeah. You're actually quite protected when it's really hot. Just a little tip <laughs> that people can use and <laughs> walk in their barbecue. So that so that changed then. So your success initially was in the U. It was in the UK in terms of sort of television presence. Did that lead then to a global presence, TV wise? Well, what happened was what, a lot of people don't realize that I also had another career, and what I was doing is I was doing my cookery classes in in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. What happened was I, I had a professional career. You know, still teaching chefs. My second book came along, and it was a book that catapulted me into another realm. And that book was the first book ever published on what I call at that time, East meets West cuisine, which is now called fusion. Uh -huh. this, this is a book I wrote about 
what I do in my own cooking, just like that recipe I gave you, of, of how to use Asian things, but combining it with Western things. Yeah. Like hoisin with thyme. I mean, because I was doing that instinctively. And I was doing that in my um, uh, cooking classes for chefs. Because, you know, obviously, I'm doing a, a one-week seminar on Chinese cookery, but they're not going to be Chinese chefs because they're not Chinese and they're not going to open up a Chinese restaurant. But what are lessons you can learn about the techniques of Chinese cooking, about the flavors that you can use in Western cooking? See, this is what Charlie Trotter loved. And always in my last class, I would do an East-West class to show them what lessons they can learn from uh, my Chinese yeah. culture and their European culture. And so I started melding it into one. And that book made a, a sensation, especially with chefs. And I was asked by the Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong to come and cook for them in 1988 uh, for two weeks. I did a what, what is now called a pop-up restaurant. Yeah. And it was a sensation in Hong Kong because the Peninsula had only hired French chefs before to do something like that. And it's the first time someone Chinese did something wow. that knocked people's socks off. And in 1988, the management of Cafe Pacific came and ate at my pop-up restaurant. And they said, we would love you to do this on the airline. Wow. So I thought, hmm, that's a challenge. So I designed a menu that, because they were migrating from being completely European and French into not Asian. They knew where their market was. So they said, we want to change our food to reflect our clientele, which was more and more Asian. So I did, I did all the food from uh, economy to first class. I mean, I flew to 35 of their ports. I learned so much wow. about cooking on a grand scale like that um, and working with different chefs. And that led to gigs all over Asia, top hotels like the Oriental here in Bangkok. This is when I first got to Bangkok. And the chefs used to tease me because my name is Hom, and Hom in Thai means uh, smells good. <laughs> the chefs used to tease me. <laughs> tease Ken Hom, Hom. <laughs> I love that. That's brilliant. But, but it's funny because that whole kind of fusion thing, that you were doing just as a matter of course because of because where you were living, it almost naturally it, it, it almost got out of hand, didn't it? You know, it almost felt I like know. It, it became too complex. It became. Oh, exactly. Do you use the expression it's, confusion? It's, yeah, exactly. It, because too many people mix things they don't know anything experience about. They don't yeah. have experience with those kind of things, and they mix things for the sake of mixing rather than um, this is something I like to eat. You know what I always tell people? Don't cook it if you don't like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because as you know, you're, you're, you're a chef and a cook. You know, you wouldn't make something you don't like to eat. No. Right? Uh, so it can't be good. So th that's the problem with this. It, you're absolutely right. It got out of hand. It was massive confusion. And, and it was sad. If, if you looked at my East Meets West book, it was very... I limited myself to certain ingredients and I kept my eye on the ball. You wouldn't find 10 ingredients like that. Uh, you would find like five simple flavorful ingredients mixed together. And when you cook my recipes, 
it actually made sense to yeah. taste. Yeah. It wasn't an intellectual exercise. Well, we opened Greens in 1990, my, my first restaurant, which was Veggie. And that book was actually a really kind of big influence on what we did in the early days because of that whole thing, because, you know, in a very different way, because vegetarian food was actually quite mundane yeah. in the UK back then, then we obviously looked at different influences around the world and we, and we looked at great cuisines that actually didn't even understand the concept of vegetarian, either had meat or it didn't. It wasn't about denying anything, it's about having great food. And your East Meets West book, was so influential on that. And around the same time, early days, we had a guy who came to work with us who was an Australian guy, first Australian chef we, we'd employed. And of course, the Australians have always been very good at that kind of East-West thing because of the way, because of their landmass and their, their nearest landmass being Southeast Asia. And they're close to Asia. Yeah. Exactly. And they're close to Asia and they have a big Asian population. And it's funny that you said that, Simon, because when I cooked in Sydney, uh, Neil Perry. Yeah, Rockpool. Uh, yeah, incredible. Yeah. These kinds of things. And he said, you're my inspiration. I, you know, yeah. I almost cried. They were so, so lovely. And I would cook with Serge Dancero and all these other um, great uh, Australian chefs. And I went to New Zealand to, to cook at the region. And I was going all over these places. And I mean, we're talking about the early 90s and things were just opening up. It was a fantastic professional experience for me, especially working with all these uh, top chefs and discovering uh, what they were doing in Australia and, I mean, cooking in Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore. How we go to uh, uh, Indonesia. I thought, wow, I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and I, I didn't have to have a restaurant. <laughs> but are you aware of the, the massive influence you've had on all levels, both from home cooks around the world, particularly in the UK, I would say, but then also from a professional point of view, the number of kind of top-level chefs who, who cite you as a really big influence on their career? Simon, it's only because they've just been around so bloody long. It's not. <laughs> you know, when you it, it's not. It, it's <laughs> not. Yeah, and the thing is, the thing is, when people listen to this, uh, it, it, and it's not that you're pretending to be humble. You are. Every single day. There is no one in the world who has a bad word to say about you. You know, it, it's well, genuinely you know true. You have to cook from your heart. Listen, if you're not having a good time, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know, my philosophy is, listen, we arrive in this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, just have a good time because, you know, we know what the end game is. So <laughs> if you're not having a good time, then don't do it. That's why you have to cook from your heart. You have to really cook things you like to eat. I think that's really important. And you know, what I always tell chefs too, uh, or, or any cooks, don't be ashamed of, of your cooking. Somebody who makes the best fish and chips say, well, it's not Michelin. It's like, right. Forget about all that. Yeah. If it's a fantastic fish and chip, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, I would say the funny thing with kind of mission star chefs, and you know, and we, we both know many, many of them. What people mm. always need to remember, I think, about them is when they go home and they cook for themselves, they don't yes, make mission star food. food. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they want what we all want. You know, they want a nice piece of meat, nice piece of fish, and nice veggies. They want to feel good and they want to enjoy it with their friends tasty, and family. Right? They want it to be tasty. They don't want it to be fussy and that's the thing i constantly rant and rave against you know all this food that looks so manipulated and 
Yeah. So <laughs> I want a chicken to look like a chicken. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I don't want to cut into something that looks like an apple and is actually foie gras. No, I don't I want don't. it. <laughs> so so where are you now in terms of your 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 life? Because obviously you, you have a world that you're full of choices. You know, you're a very successful human being. You still love what you do. Have you slowed down at all? Simon, what I love about what I do now is I'm I'm really active in lots of charity work and giving back because I think that's really, really important. That's something I learned from my mom. You know, you, you, you must give back because, I mean, I've been lucky to be successful in many ways. And to be successful in life, you really have to give because the thing is you, you can't take, take, take. You, uh, I want to just give, give, give. Yeah. And the older I get, I mean, I'm, 72 now. Oh my God. <laughs> a pensioner. <laughs> and you've got to keep working to pay my pension. <laughs> I do, Ken. I do. I'll keep sending the checks you every month. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it's so important that there's so many things that, like, for instance, I'm very active in action against hunger. As somebody in food, there should be no human person on this planet that is hungry. We have hunger in the UK, and I mean, that's it's ridiculous. Uh, we have to stop all that. And of course, the environment, that's my thing. I want to stop. I, I know you're into this too. I, I hate all this food waste. Yeah. That really draws me up. You know, people, you know, I never throw anything away. This yeah. is why I think, um, uh, I said, throw everything in the wok and it tastes good. <laughs> you don't put some sauce on it. I mean, don't throw food away. It's not green. It's not. It's car. It's bad for the atmosphere, and I, I think it's really important now that we we know and we have to fight this. I mean, this is for future generations. Yeah. And for the planet, we we can't leave the planet in a mess, and all those kinds of things are uh, my passion now. And I'm spending more and more times uh, time doing that type of thing, which I love because. If I can give back, it's not only money, but if I can use things that have happened to me and use my notoriety to help raise funds, like, for instance, I, I do things for prostate cancer. Look, if it can save one person, you would have done something. But it's interesting because, you know, we, 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 we've sort of come around almost in a full circle. One of the things I picked up on very early was when you spoke about your mum and about how you know, you, you had a poor upbringing and then as soon as you came slightly more stable, then your mum gave back and that's exactly what you do. And then you talked about when you were in California, how the whole vibe in California was about rebelling against kind of the, the big corporate way in which, which food was done and feeling that was, there was an undercurrent that needed to be changed. And you're still involved in that. It's interesting how those points in your life i.e your parental influence which i always think influences me so much and then equally then your your young life when you're a student and you're stepping out and almost things then that you sort of think oh yeah this is just the kind of now and almost we come back and find that those values don't go away because they're good values and they're honest values and that we we stay that way as human beings and clearly that that's obviously the case with you and also the fact that you're still a party animal I mustn't mustn't forget that one <laughs> <laughs> only with you Simon <laughs> <laughs> right final thing Ken obviously yeah. you know you are an incredibly well traveled human being and what we like to do with all of our guests is we want to know 
your secret place that you go to. It can be anywhere in the world. We, we try and avoid kind of posh restaurants, which I know you're not going to pick anyway. It could be a coffee oh. shop. It can be a little noodle stall somewhere. It could be a coffee shop within a bookshop. Somewhere in the world that you think about when you're going to your happy place that we're going we're gonna to let our listeners in on. Where are you taking us, Ken? Just right outside of my flat here in Bangkok. On the street is this uh, food stall, a man and his wife. They are making the most wonderful fried chicken in the world. It would make yeah. the colonel very, very angry <laughs> because it's so good. <laughs> and they, they take every part of the chicken and what they have, which is really addictive, I, I buy it and take it on the plane. They take chicken skin oh. and they fry it till it's so crispy. It's so bad oh, for your cholesterol. Wow. <laughs> I try not to eat too much of, but it is so good. And I mean, it, it's just right outside of, of my street. There, oh, that's the street. Uh, that's just wrong. That's, that's that's torture, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> and, and I thought. My God, I wish I could bring them everywhere I go. <laughs> it's so good. And is, is, is there anywhere in, in UK, in Chinatown, in London, or any of the Chinatowns in the UK that, that you love? There's so many good restaurants. You know, one of my favorite restaurants in London is A Wong. Incredible. Andrew Wong is sort of, he calls me Uncle Ken. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's an adopted son of mine. If I had a restaurant, I think... That could have been me. <laughs> yeah. I, you and know what? I, I think that's him. absolutely right. I mean, he is a talent. Wow, that boy is a talent. And that's my really favorite. I mean, I, there are many good restaurants in Chinatown, but what he's doing is outside of the box. Yeah. And, but in a way that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, his food is delicious. And, and he's such a lovely guy. Yeah, well. he is. And yeah, he, he is. He, 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 he could actually be related to you. He, he has a, he has a, <laughs> well, he does have a similar kind of ethereal quality that you have. I mean, we, we've, we've come to the end. I mean, you know, I, I love spending time with you. You know, I do. And, you know, we constantly say, we need to get together. We 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 see each other because we're both judges on the Golden Chopstick Awards, and yeah, you know exactly. we 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 need to. When we can travel, then we've talked a long time about going out for dinner in Paris. Next time you're there, we are going to do it. And Simon, I want I, br- I want to bring you to the dark side. Okay. Of- Exposing you to things like Japanese whiskey. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm already scared. I, I, I'm already scared because I know I know how much you can drink. <laughs> Ken, it's always a joy to see you, to see your happy, smiling face. Uh, you bring joy to the world. And I think the thing, I have to share this because I remember saying this to you when we were drunk one night, that I, I said, and this is a terrible thing to finish on about, about when you die. I said, when you die, I do hope that when they bury you, you have a wok-shaped kind of mound in the, in the <laughs> at your grave. Oh, I'm being cremated. I'm going to be cremated. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm having a memorial. To... When they have a blue plaque for where you lived in London, I want it to be wok-shaped. <laughs> Simon, even in death, I want to be ecological. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, it's a joy to see you. I love you lots, my dear friend. See you soon. Bye. Lots of love. Take care. Thank you so much to Ken for joining me from his Bond lair in Bangkok. And I cannot wait for that invite to drop into my inbox to go and join him for some magnificent food. Might be France, it might be Bangkok. Maybe it'd be Paris. Who knows? But you know it's going to happen. Well, 
least in my head. Uh, apart from anything else, he obviously loves barbecuing. So hopefully he's inspired you to get outdoors and start cooking. Head to Webber.com for all your barbecuing needs from a wide range of grills and accessories to tips and great recipes. We've also got a special offer for you too at Webber.com forward slash grilling. If you want to improve your skills on the barbecue, Weber are offering you a discount to attend their Grill Academy. Now, that's where you learn to enhance your barbecuing expertise by learning from some serious pros. They are really, really quite amazing courses. So do have a look and see if it's something that you might fancy. The offer is valid for Grill Academies in the UK. Enter the code GRILLING21, that's GRILLING21, before the 15th of October and get £50 off when you book two tickets on a course. As I say, you can find all the information at weber.com forward slash grilling. Subscribe to Grilling on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us if you enjoy what you hear. We'll be back next week talking to Gizzy Erskine. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and exec producer Zach Brown. I'm Sam Rimmer. Thanks so much for listening. Listener.